I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. American Biography is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Are you a business owner or service provider who wants to spread the word that you're open for business? Well, go Agora and let our network of independent podcasts connect you to almost a million curious and discerning listeners each month. Interested? Visit us at agorapodcastnetwork.com and discover the difference Agora can make for you. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography. This is episode 25, Marshall at Home. It is good to be back, folks. Before launching back into the narrative today, I just wanted to remind you how important listener support is to making podcasting work. Especially as we're approaching the holiday season, many people are preparing to give their letter carriers or trash collectors their well-deserved annual gift, and you should absolutely do that. But might I suggest also adding the humble podcaster to this list of worthies this winter. Any and all forms of support are appreciated. You can leave reviews on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. You could send one-off donations through PayPal to, say, AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling particularly festive, you could give the gift that keeps on giving and sign up to become one of the show's sustaining patrons by going to patreon.com forward slash A-M-B-I-O. Thanks in advance. Now on with the show. So last time we traversed the swirling tumult surrounding Aaron Burr's great Western conspiracy, and John Marshall's part in shaping the lasting legal definition of treason in American law as a result of that. Today we're embarking on a different sort of episode that marks a long-planned sea change in how the life of Marshall is going to be approached for the remainder of this series. We are going to begin to transition to a broader view of Marshall and his influences on the United States, its laws, and its institutions. Over the next several episodes, we will begin to chew up real estate, as it were, and traverse more years per episode, and sometimes double back to look at other long-tail developments over Marshall's final quarter century of life, while still occasionally drilling down into matters of significance or import as we've done throughout thus far. The reason for this is simple, and that is, we're almost done here, folks. 
Up to this point in our narrative, John Marshall has lived an incredible 52 years of non-stop action, often at the center of events, and he will sit on the bench for another 27 years. But with the retirement of his great antagonist, Thomas Jefferson, the torrent of existential crises slows considerably, allowing us the opportunity to appreciate the forest and not just the trees. I believe this change is logical. If we think about our own lives and how we pass them, what do we do? We get up, we go to work, maybe bring the kids to practice, run some errands, come home, go to bed, do it again. John Marshall isn't immune from the drudgery of workaday life. He sat at the head of the judicial branch for 34 years, took part in over a thousand decisions, and penned 519 opinions. But not every case was significant or even interesting. Not every opinion was profound. No, for him, like us, most days weren't epic. They were routine. But that's okay. Hell, that's almost comforting. So now we will take our first steps towards this new era and begin by discussing some of John's domestic challenges as well as some of his private interests and side projects. Picking up where we left off last time, in 1807, following the Burr trial, Marshall had come under some heavy popular criticism. John was in no way a shrinking violet, and though never one to court controversy, he also wasn't one to shy away from it, or dwell on it for that matter. To put things into perspective, the winter he spent at Valley Forge was undoubtedly worse than anything the Republican press could write. So taking the attitude that this sort of thing was just the price to be paid for a public life, Marshall was able to remain rather sanguine about all of it. However constructive John's mindset was, however, he wasn't the only Marshall who might feel feelings about, say, John's likeness being burned in effigy, as it was in Baltimore. And when word of this reached Polly Marshall in Richmond, she was decidedly less stoic about it. Already fragile, she was unable to cope and suffered a nervous breakdown. Listeners may well remember that this was not the first time something like this had happened to Polly, but it would, essentially, be the last. Slipping now into a severe depression, she took to her bed and, at only the age of 41, would rarely leave it again. For the remaining 24 years of her life, Polly would be tormented by loud or sudden noises and stress, and her nervous condition may have been compounded by anemia. Over the course of this podcast, I think it's been made clear that John Marshall truly loved his wife, but time and again we've seen him accept positions and appointments with little or no regard to Polly's feelings on the matter. The commission as part of a peace envoy to Paris, to become Secretary of State, even to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, were all accepted without so much as even sounding Polly out for an opinion. You could argue that time was a great factor in some of these things, and that decisions couldn't wait for letters to be exchanged. But even where and when that were true, he was always making decisions with the full knowledge that Polly's mental and physical health had steadily deteriorated over time, with each miscarriage, each child's premature death, and each one of his prolonged absences. Now, I think it's valid to point out that John clearly felt public service was a duty, but the number of times that he turned down service within the Washington administration alone equally shows that he was willing to set that sense of duty aside when convenient. Looked at this way, 
one is free to argue that John enjoyed public service when it was on his terms and when it suited him. If Marshall had wished it, he could have remained an influential attorney with a successful practice in Richmond and still been one of the largest landowners in Virginia and have been more immediately available for his wife and children. Public service then, as it is now, is a strangely selfless, yet selfish choice, and it's fraught with all sorts of potentially negative outcomes for that public person's family. We're going to look now at the lengths John was willing to go to comfort and protect his family over the years, which range from the routine to the extreme. And I bring this up not to condemn or criticize the choices Marshall did make, but I do think it's worth taking a moment to contemplate the complexity of his motivations and the consequences his choices did have on his family, and wonder if that in turn colored the way in which he interacted with his family as a result. And as I was covering this, I did begin to wonder to what extent guilt may have played a part in John's actions. For a moment, let's stick just with Polly's situation and look at her extreme sensitivity to sound. As was his way, John responded to Polly's ill health with an outpouring of affection and solicitousness. Marshall's grandchildren recalled that upon entering the Richmond house, John would immediately change his shoes for slippers so that he could move about the house more quietly. In letters, John wrote that they were at times forced to leave the city at Christmas, because the holiday revelries and wassailers just made things too noisy. Amazingly, and this is a testament to the esteem in which the Marshall family was held in Richmond, to help ease her suffering, the city council for a time suspended the town bell from ringing and muffled the town clock to quiet the sound of its bells. Polly slowly withdrew altogether from society, yet John remained a notoriously social animal and continued his renowned lawyer's dinners in his home. Though when these convened, Polly was carefully gathered up and transported across the street to her sister Eliza's home. But it came as a surprise to me just how big a problem stray or loose animals were in Richmond. On a more than one occasion, apparently, the Chief Justice of the United States could be found outside of his home in his nightshirt in the wee hours of the morning trying to wrangle some noisy livestock or chase away stray dogs, whose bells or baying disturbed his wife's sleep. Unusually for the time, Marshall largely took over the running of his household, which was considered beneath the dignity of many serious gentlemen. But as Gene Smith writes, drop-in visitors could expect to find John, with his sleeves rolled up and a handkerchief tied about his head, helping to scrub the floors. Smith also reports that, in what is my favorite incident in Marshall's life, since he forgot to pack his trousers while traveling the circuit, that Richmond residents grew accustomed to seeing the tall, ungainly, negligently dressed Chief Justice of the United States shopping in the farmer's market, where he made his daily purchases of meat, vegetables, butter, and eggs. He never hurried and habitually lingered at the market, chatting with everyone, learning the gossip, and listening to the ceaseless political talk. One day, as he loitered with his produce, a young gentleman new to Richmond, who had never seen Marshall before, offered the poorly dressed Chief Justice a small coin to carry a plump turkey that he had just purchased. Marshall obligingly added the turkey to his own provisions and trudged respectfully behind his new employer to a house not far from his own, whereupon he handed the bird to its owner and pocketed the coin flipped in his direction. 
The incident, witnessed by many at the market, sent the city into gales of laughter, although Marshall kindly noted that we were going the same way, and it seemed only neighborly. I want to pause here because, while I want to convey Marshall's humility, and that he was not one to stand on his pride, I don't want to give the impression that he was some sort of Lady Madonna or single parent spinning plates and somehow improbably keeping them up against all odds. Though he was not born into money, he had earned a very smart living as an attorney and had been a very intelligent investor. He'd become an extremely wealthy man with a deep and diverse portfolio, and the vast tracts of land that he'd obtained in the Fairfax Purchase ensured him a steady income. So it's not like Marshall was ever faced with the choice of calling out of work because he couldn't find or afford a sitter. From 1801 to 1835, without fail, when Marshall traveled the circuit or went to Washington, Polly and his children could be cared for by the dozen or so domestic slaves John kept in his home in Richmond, under the tacit supervision of his sister-in-law, Eliza. And we should further be clear that even when John was in residence, he only needed to get his hands dirty when he felt like it, and the majority of the cooking, cleaning, and home maintenance fell to these very same slaves. When it came to his children who had survived to adulthood, John vacillated between worry and despair. Some of you might be familiar with the saying that being a parent is to forever have your heart go walking around outside of your body. This has proved true for me, and seems genuinely to be so for John. And here we see at times his regretful acknowledgement that his absence and preoccupations may have prevented him from seeing to his children's moral instruction and character development. His eldest, Thomas, was born in 1784, and graduated from Princeton in 1803. Thomas was said to be the closest to his father out of all of John's children, and the most like him. After college, Tom attempted to practice law in Richmond, but chronic poor health prevented him from working regularly and building up a practice. In 1809, Thomas married, and as a wedding present, Marshall gave them his Oak Hill estate. This rather generous gift proved fortuitous, as Tom seemed to have an enthusiasm for farming and did well for himself, and even found himself serving in the state legislature for a time in the 1830s, where he emerged as a leader in the struggle to end slavery in Virginia, before dying rather tragically in a freak carriage accident shortly before John himself passed away in 1835, information that was kept from the Chief Justice as he lay on his own deathbed. Next was Jocelyn Ambler Marshall, three years younger than Thomas, who struggled to find his path. For a time he studied medicine, before dabbling a bit in theology. It's unclear what would have happened to him if his father had not been a large, well-off landowner, an eminently influential political figure. Because he seemed to lack any ambition or direction, he was lucky that when he married, John bestowed on the newlyweds a large tract of land, this one called Prospect Hill. And this seemed to be enough for his son, who spent the rest of his days managing that farm and entertaining frequent guests. John and Polly's younger children proved increasingly frustrating. Their only surviving daughter, Mary, was 15 in 1810, when, for a time, she was sent away to live with John's sister, Elizabeth Colston, in Berkeley County, Virginia, where she remained for over a year. Why she was sent away isn't entirely clear, but it seems that things may have been getting a little too serious between Mary and the boy next door, 
Jocelyn Harvey, who was also her cousin. And her removal seems that it may have been a way to separate the two since it does not appear John approved of the relationship. This view is supported by a timeline wherein John withholds his consent for Mary and Harvey to marry while she's in her minority, and it was in his legal authority to prevent a union. However, as soon as Mary turned 18 and able to marry without her father's permission, she promptly did so. In 1815, Polly and John's third son, John Jr., was expelled from Harvard at age 17 for, according to school records, engaging in a course of immoral and dissolute conduct which had been long continued and under circumstances that left little hope of his reform. John Jr.'s expulsion stung Marshall, as stories of his son's burgeoning alcoholism reached him as well. John poured his anguish and his sense of complicity for his dissolute child's ways into an apologetic letter that he penned to a professor at the university. In part it reads, I have been excessively pained at his misconduct and cannot entirely excuse myself for the unlimited confidence I placed in him. I think myself, in some measure, accessory to his disgrace. It later continues, I fear he will not avail himself of any opportunity which may be afforded him. I grieve to perceive in him no mark of sincere penitence, no deep conviction of his faults, no resolute determination to correct them. In the wounded feelings of a father, anxious for the welfare of a son, of whose unworthiness he is unwilling to be convinced, your goodness will, I trust, find an apology for the trouble given you by this letter. John Jr. would never return to Harvard, but he also wouldn't come home to Richmond. Following his expulsion, he remained in Cambridge, living off his father's credit for a time. Eventually, Jr. relented and did return to Virginia, where he married and, as I'm sure you've guessed, received an estate from his father called Mount Blanc, where neither his spendthrift ways or alcoholism dissipated. He would predecease his father by several years, passing in 1833 at the age of 35, deeply in debt, leaving it to his father to support his daughter-in-law and three young grandchildren. Right behind John Jr. at Harvard was James Keith, who was a freshman in 1815, for a minute. As Marshall was apologizing for John Jr., the university was disciplining James as well for breaking a window and goofing off at prayer time. Wishing to avoid having a second son expelled from college, Marshall was proactive and reached out to his friend Bushrod Washington, who was presiding over the circuit court in Philadelphia, in order to see if he would speak with the directors of an investment house called Willing and Francis to discuss the prospect of them taking James Keith on as a sort of apprentice. Not surprisingly, it turns out that they were happy to oblige the one Supreme Court justice, making an inquiry on behalf of the Chief Justice, and James withdrew from college on May 2, 1815, to take up the banking trade. James stayed on at Willing and Francis until 1818, but chose not to go into banking. Rather, he returned to Virginia, married, and that's right, you guessed it, was gifted Leeds Manor by his father and took up the life of a gentleman farmer, occasionally dabbling in local politics. Finally, there was Edward Carrington Marshall, the youngest child of John and Polly Marshall. Edward, too, went to Harvard, but unlike many of his brothers, actually graduated in 1826. Afterwards, he returned to Fauquier County, where he did what by now I'm going to call the Marshall Boys thing, and took a turn representing the county for a spell, got married, and had Dad grant him some land, 
which in Edward's case also included the construction of a house. Edward, though, it seems, was at least a bit more imaginative and was perhaps a bit more shrewd than his older brothers. Despite suffering debilitating injuries from two carriage accidents that severely limited his mobility in a time before accessibility was a thing, Edward Marshall seems to have inherited his father's dream of connecting Virginia's Shenandoah Valley and Piedmont regions with the state's eastern ports of Alexandria and Richmond. To this end, Edward helped obtain a charter for and became the president of the Manassas Gap Railroad, which not only successfully connected the rural agricultural areas of Virginia with the coastal markets, but also eventually connected Virginia's interior with the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. As we'll discuss in just a few minutes, this is a feat that would have made his father extraordinarily proud. Because now we're going to transition and discuss some of Marshall's private interests and projects beyond caring for his wife and fretting over his children's futures. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1799, shortly following George Washington's death, Bushrod Washington, who'd become the custodian of the late president's papers, was seized with the idea to turn those papers into a sort of official biography and was determined to attach Marshall to the project. Marshall, of course, was an ardent admirer of Washington's. Indeed, Smith notes that no one in public life was closer to Washington in his final years. And as you might recall, he had been the representative to announce the old general's death in the House of Representatives, and had thereafter organized the public mourning ceremonies in the Capitol. The two friends struck up an understanding. Bushrod would provide John with Washington's papers and handle the business end of the endeavor. John would just have to write the book. But this was something he'd never done before. And at the outset of the project, John didn't seem to have a firm grasp on how difficult an undertaking it would be, and became slightly overwhelmed. Part of the disconnect was that this was a much different type of writing than the deadline-driven one-offs the legal profession demands. 
Writing history takes strategic planning and a long-term vision for developing an internally coherent narrative over time and space. But Marshall dove into it as if it were an opinion, and in a letter to his publisher, several years later, he admitted the mistake, writing, I had to learn that under the pressure of constant application, the spring of the mind loses its elasticity. This certainly implies that this had happened to John a time or two, at least early on in the project. And let me just say, right on, John, I feel you. Right on. It didn't help things that 1800 was kind of a crazy year for Marshall. He was Secretary of State. War with France was still out there as a possibility. It was an election year. And right after, he'd get this new gig with the Supreme Court. And we all know how hectic things can be when you're starting a new job. Also, now he had all this traveling to do for work. Long story short, it was tough to get the book project off the ground. Eventually, John did find his stride, though. Because despite his relaxed appearance, Marshall maintained a rather disciplined daily work regimen. Typically, he rose before dawn in order to go out for a brisk four to five mile walk and then put in a full day's work usually before noon, leaving the rest of the day open to whatever pursuits, literary or other. Five years later, his five-volume, 3,200-page book was complete. What Marshall achieved, however, was much more than just a biography of a man. In many ways, he was the first to write a history of the United States. Over the course of the five volumes, he discussed the history of the British colonies beginning with Jamestown and Plymouth, he traced the colony's growth and covered the deepening divide between Britain and her North American possessions, and he told the story of the Revolutionary War and of the Washington administration following that president's life up to his death in 1799. Now, I've read the greater portion of this book, and honestly, it's pretty solid for being published in 1806. However, contemporary reviews were mixed and often broke down along political lines. The British, unsurprisingly, looked down their noses at it. Federalists praised it, and the Republicans criticized it, most especially Volume 5, which focused on the toxic politics of the 1790s. Marshall had expected this and tried to shake it off. As he wrote to a correspondent, I have reason to fear that the imprudent task I have just executed will draw upon me a degree of odium and calumny, which I might perhaps otherwise have escaped. But having undertaken it, I have endeavored to detail the events of a most turbulent and factious period, without unnecessarily wounding the dominant party, but without a cowardly abandonment of the truth. The biggest jerk about the whole thing, it shouldn't surprise anyone, was Thomas Jefferson, who was reflexively suspicious of and down on anything Marshall's name was attached to. When he caught wind of the project, Jefferson rather narcissistically believed Marshall's only possible reason for undertaking the writing of it was to try to influence the 1804 election. Seriously. We know this because he wrote a letter to his friend Joel Barlow in Paris, unequivocally stating, John Marshall is writing the life of General Washington from his papers. It is intended to come out just in time to influence the next presidential election. It is written, therefore, principally with a view to election purposes. And Jefferson goes on, trying without success to convince Barlow to write a Republican rebuttal to Marshall's work. Another prominent, but eminently more reasonable Republican, 
who would assume the party's mantle of leadership in 1809, James Madison, delivered a more objective assessment, calling Marshall's book highly respectable as a specimen of historical composition. To print the book, Bushrod had reached a deal with Caleb Wayne, the publisher of the Gazette of the United States, the leading Federalist newspaper of the day. John and Bushrod would receive $1 for each book sold, but would receive nothing until the third volume was released, thus allowing the publisher to recoup his losses on the front end. As was typical of the day, copies of the books were sold by subscription, often by door-to-door salesmen, and to this end, Wayne engaged a northern agent and a southern agent to do just this. But he also engaged a number of postmasters around the country to take subscriptions and collect money. Eventually, over 7,000 sets were sold domestically, plus there was the sale of the rights internationally, all of which eventually yielded a cool 19500 each for John and Bushrod, which the former used to finalize the purchase of the Fairfax properties. And it was a good thing he did too, or as we've seen, he wouldn't have known what to give his kids as a wedding present. But literary pursuits weren't the only side project John cultivated outside of work and family. You may remember that in his youth, Marshall was a robust foot soldier and in excellent condition. In his late 50s, he still walked several miles a day. You may also recall the larger-than-life role his father, Thomas Marshall, played in his life and imagination. Besides being a competent military commander, Colonel Thomas Marshall had been a surveyor who had helped map out western Virginia and Kentucky. In 1812, John was given the opportunity to follow in his dad's footsteps and forward another one of his own pet interests, infrastructure. So hopefully that cryptic remark I made earlier when talking about Edward Carrington completing his father's dream is about to make a whole lot more sense. Because for years, John had been an outspoken proponent of expanding the Commonwealth's commercial influence by finding ways to connect Virginia's coastal ports with the nation's interior through internal improvements. And in the summer of 1812, he was asked by the state of Virginia to chair a commission to determine the feasibility of linking the James River with the tributaries of the Ohio River on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, thereby joining the James to trans-Appalachian commerce. The project would require a surveying party to undertake detailed investigations of the stream beds on both sides of the mountain to determine their navigability to recommend where the constructions of canals would be necessary, and to map out the best route for a road which would cut across the mountains and connect the two river systems. At 57 years old, Marshall decided that he'd personally lead this expedition, and on September 1st, 1812, he set out at the head of a 22-man group into the interior. They traveled via flatboat up the James River, portaged overland where they needed to, and pushed their way into the Ohio River Valley traveling some 250 miles in six weeks. And the report Marshall eventually made from this trip would serve as the basis for Virginia's principal public infrastructure project before the railway became supreme, an eventuality which, ironically, was brought about by John's own son. And thus, the circle is complete. Okay, folks, we're going to stop there for today. Thank you for all your patience. I know this episode took a while to come out, But some writer's block, combined with some real-life stuff that came up in abundance and in great rapidity, had to take precedence as it will on occasion. 
But while sometimes I'm forced to step away from production, the podcast and you, my dear listeners, are never too far from my thoughts. Just a last note before I leave you today. Since my last episode, the Agora Podcast Network has added three more terrific podcasts. The Cannonball, where hosts Claude and Daniel try to read their way through Harold Bloom's list of great literary works that make up the Western canon, if it doesn't kill them first. There's also Tiny Vampires, a show about blood-sucking insects and the diseases they spread, hosted by a real-life scientist, Raven. And last but not least, The History of Westeros, hosted by Aziz and Ashea, who dig deep into the fantastical world created by George R.R. R. Martin. You can check out these shows and more by heading to agorapodcastnetwork.com, and I certainly encourage you to do so. All right, remember... You can follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. The website is www.americanbiography.webs.com, and if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, the email is americanbiographypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, everybody, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, and I hope to talk to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.